This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c I wanted to kind of twist the cap off of the baby food jar and turn all of that upside down and say, well, if we want to get to the family meal, because that's ultimately the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Is getting baby to eat what you want to eat. um, So you're not constantly making two separate meals for the rest of your life. Um, How do we get from there to there? And how can we get the foods that we eat into baby's diet sooner? It turns out it's completely safe to do. And there's a lot of benefits to doing it early on. Welcome back to the show. This podcast is growing because of you and your reviews. So keep leaving those reviews, updating them and sharing the show with any parent, grandparent, teacher, anybody who takes care of children. I am so excited to welcome a favorite of mine, not only on social media, but what she's doing and her business is doing for eating and feeding children. And this is Jenny Best, mom and founder of Solid Starts, a platform that's revolutionizing how we feed our babies that is helped over 2 million families and continues to grow. And we are talking about starting solids and picky eating and just a conversation with Jenny and how she found this company. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jenny. Hi, it's so good to be here. I'm glad we finally made it happen. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I found you in the pandemic. So I believe you did start solid starts in what year? Uh, 2020 was sort of the year things got really rolling. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started my platform in 2019, but then obviously in the pandemic, things really grew and I loved it. My son turned, um, you know, four, six months for solid foods and your first food database, which we'll, I'm sure talk about was our go-to, you know, how to especially make things safe to, you know, feed babies and whatnot. And I don't think anyone listening, shouldn't know who you are, but in case they don't, um, you know, you've created this incredible platform community and resources with Solid Start. Where did this inspiration come from? And just tell us more about this platform for anyone who's not familiar. Sure. Yeah. So, well, first it's the first completely free resource for babies and parents who are just starting solids and who want to start solids with an idea toward getting to, you know, the real food faster or the family meal faster versus, you know, the jarred baby food or a pouch. Those things are both totally fine as part of the process, but I wanted to kind of twist the cap off of the baby food jar and turn all of that upside down and say, well, if we want to get to the family meal, because that's ultimately the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Is getting baby to eat what you want to eat. Um, So you're not constantly making two separate meals for the rest of your life. Um, How do we get from there to there? And how can we get the foods that we eat into baby's diet sooner? It turns out it's completely safe to do. And there's a lot of benefits to doing it early on. So the inspiration really hit when um, it goes back a while, but with my firstborn, I did the typical sort of Gerber jars, whatever, pouches, whatever the pediatrician told me to do, this many tablespoons of rice cereal. This was a while ago, so it was a bit dated. Um, and my baby did not like it. He didn't like me kind of coming at him with a spoon. Mm-hmm. He really didn't like the feel of puree kind of spreading on his tongue. Um, and just the experience was really deflating. He was just not into it at all. And I didn't know there was any alternative to spoon feeding or any alternative to a jar of baby food at the time. And baby led weaning and uh, the introduction of finger food, the early introduction of finger food really wasn't a thing as much back then when I was doing this. 
And so I really didn't know there was anywhere else to turn or any other alternative to consider. So I just kind of kept trying. He kept resisting. I keep trying. He keeps resisting. And we kind of spiraled down. He started really refusing all meals, pursing his lips, turning his head, you know, crying upon the sight of the high chair, arching his back, wanting to get out. And mealtime was this like fraught and stressful environment for us. And, you know, a year into that, you start doing everything you can as a parent because, you know, you hear your child's losing weight and you start panicking. And I'm sure you've met with those patient families as a doctor yourself and you see how terrified they are. But I was terrified. He was falling off the growth charts and he actually fell from like the 90th percentile to the first Mm. over, you know, a course of many months of trying to spoon feed him and him resisting that. Um, And so fast forward a few months of me kind of pressuring him to try to open his mouth. You you start doing everything you can. Uh, Here, watch this video. Um, uh, Here, let's, you know, read this book while you're eating and sneak in a bite. And I think a lot of parents end up pressuring their children to kind of open their mouth or take one more bite because they're terrified that they're losing weight. Mm -hmm. And I think that that activity in and of itself, while well-intentioned, right? We're all, I think all of us as parents are doing the very best we can with the information we have at the time. It leads to unintentional pressure and a negative mealtime experience for the baby, which those kinds of things, you know, they form early. So, um, you know, he actually still struggles a bit today with his eating because he was on textureless food for a really, really long time because I was inadvertently pressuring him to eat by saying, oh, here, watch a video, open your mouth, all these things. And um, so when I got pregnant with my twins a few years forward, a couple years forward, I really wanted to do it differently. I was like, no, no, I cannot do this again. We will not be doing this again. And I discovered baby led weaning and started reading about the research of self-feeding and all the benefits, both from an oral motor perspective and from a psychological perspective and forming that kind of positive relationship with food and letting the baby kind of decide what goes in their mouth and when, and really was convinced that this was the path I wanted to explore. Tried it out with my twins, boy, girl, fraternal twins. And it was like mind blowingly Mm -hmm. different. I couldn't believe how easy they took to the food. Just how you were telling me before we got on the call that your little one, your youngest is not even wanting the spoon. Like, just give me the food. That's how it was. And I couldn't, after struggling for years to get my first baby to even open his mouth for the spoon of puree, I couldn't believe that my twins were like, give me that drumstick right now, that chicken drumstick. And just so happy. They were enjoying the meal. They were like blissfully excited about it. And I just kind of sat back like, oh my God, there's something really here. Mm -hmm. So I ended up starting the social media platform to document the experience, to show what we were learning along the way, because there wasn't really a resource to look up well, how do I cut steak for a baby? How do I introduce eggs to a baby? How do I cut a strawberry for a nine-month-old? There just wasn't any information about that. And I wanted to know that I was doing it safely. And I wanted to know that my doctor would approve of this and say, okay, baby's not going to choke. And this is how it goes. And so research led to me meeting a number of professionals online and Somehow we all kind of banded together an allergist, a pediatrician, GI, infant swallowing specialists, feeding therapists, pediatric picky eating specialists, and a nutritionist. And we oh, all kind of it? banded together. That's it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to cross all my T's and dot all my I's. Oh, I'm God. that kind of parent. I yeah, was like, no, we need, we need the multidisciplinary. Like, I need everyone to tell me this is safe all banded together and decided to essentially volunteer our time for a couple of years to build the database, the free first foods database, which is now one of the top apps in the world, I'm told, which is just mind blowing. So, um, but our goal is to keep the database um, and the app, which you can download for free forever. So that anyone, anywhere, any country, any culture could figure out how to introduce the food that they want their child to eventually eat with them to their baby and hopefully just give them the confidence to make that leap from the jar of baby food or the pouch over to the family meal, whatever that family meal might be for them. 
Oh, and I already mentioned how much I love your whole platform, but also just speaking to that first food database. And if you're, again, if you're not familiar, you need to check it out. One, because they are very inclusive of cultures. So I went through the first food database with my nanny. So we have a, a nanny for our six month old daughter at the time of this recording, and she's ready for solids. And I wanted my nanny to know how to cut this that I didn't have to tell her, right? Like I know how yes. to cut it because I've done it with Ryan, our son. We did um, self-feeding yes. early on as well. But with my nanny, I was like, hey, here's the food, you know, cut it like this. And the older generation across of cultures, the older generation is hesitant, but we want to teach them. And that hesitation drops down, right? And that probably is why yeah. you had pediatricians that were like, I don't know about this. In my training, we never learned about baby led weaning or self-feeding. We learned the, you know, you do the soft puree and yeah. then seven to eight months, nine months, you go to stage two. And it wasn't until yeah. my first job as a pediatrician in Manhattan, I worked with a clinician and this practice was very international. We had a lot of diverse families and a lot of families started asking me about baby led weaning. And I was like, what's this baby led weaning? <laughs> so I started reading about it. And a lot of my families were from Europe. And they, you know, live half time in Manhattan, half time in Europe. And I was like, huh, this seems pretty reasonable. And so I started doing my own research outside of my training. And that is when I was like, this makes sense. You know, obviously, if a child wants to do puree, we can teach them ways to like self-feed. And so we did a bridge. We did puree, but on a spoon so that she, you know, both yeah. of our children grabbed it. And that was yes, more for great. the comfort, right? Because it is yeah. new. Um, and so that's something that we did. And I showed my nanny like, hey, look at her do this. And especially also when we had a nanny for our son, they're capable, like let them do that. Yeah. To this day, I, my husband is not really down with it. He gets nervous and my, yeah. my the grandparents get nervous, but the more yeah. we show it and you know, your platform is not just the database. It's obviously a lot of resources on choking and gagging and feeding yeah. mechanisms. And it's also what you mentioned already about how we inadvertently create feeding aversions, which is something that I am so passionate about because I do believe, and this is a loaded statement, but I do believe truly from my practice that a lot of feeding difficulties are facilitated by parents not knowing what they can do to help that behavior or stop that behavior. Yeah. And that includes yeah, forcing, that's true. right? That includes forcing. Yeah. Of course, there's texture issues. Of course, there's feeding mechanism issues. We know that to be a reality, but we can't deny that there is. That's a small percentage of right. the overall. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno lime cheddar chicken and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains.
Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, we take heat time to time from talking about even the notion of being able to prevent picky eating. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is because I discovered in the research, and there's quite clear research on this, that there are distinct causes of picky eating. Yes, one of those is like medical issues, you know, severe allergies, celiac. If food is making your baby feel sick, that's going to create a negative association with eating. Those are pretty like small percentages when you compare to the overall population. And yes, there's neurodivergent issues and things like that might affect feeding at the table or even just childhood characteristics like some kids are more open to change and exploration than others. But the reality is, even if you put all of those things together, that group is still a very small percentage. I would say probably less than eight, seven percent of the issues with picky eating. The other causes of picky eating are fascinating and they're almost all within our control as caregivers. So, you know, things like a very controlling, anxious parenting Mm -hmm. style, commanding a child eat a certain way at the table, that's going to create a negative association as well. On the other hand, an overly permissive style of parenting, the research is really strong there too. Oh, oh, you don't want this dinner? Okay, let me go make you mm-hmm. something else, right? And it's not to say you can never do those things or never go back to the kitchen, but it's kind of like where the scale is tipping in your favor, right? You kind of want to aim for balance, I think, with all of these things. But yeah, Controlling parenting, anxious parenting, if you are bringing a lot of anxiety and fear to the table and you're snatching the food out of the baby's hand because you're panicking, they're going to mimic that emotion, even start to pick up and feel that emotion. And we don't want our kids feeling afraid of food or that food is scary in that way. So, you know, from negative mealtime experiences like force feeding or feeling pressure, and even a six-month-old can feel even the hint of pressure at the table. We don't think they can understand us, but they do. Um, And then, you know, the other thing that really gets down to what you were talking about earlier with the guidance, you know, in your uh, study of discipline and from the American Academy of Pediatrics and so forth is a lack of exposure to chewable foods by Mm -hmm. a certain age. And this is hard to talk about because, you know, if you're a parent here listening and look, I spoon fed my child textureless food, literally squeeze the pouch on the spoon. Okay. Didn't even let them hold the pouch, squeeze the pouch onto the spoon for more than 18 months. Okay. So, you know, I've been there, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what drives those decisions from not wanting to get messy to being afraid of choking, to being afraid of allergies, what have you. Um, But the reality is, is that there's a window of time in which the brain more easily picks up the kind of mechanisms of chewing and safe eating and swallowing. It's a lot going on. You have to take a piece. First, you have to learn to take an accurate size bite. Then you've got to learn to move the food to the side of the mouth, to the molars for chewing. Molars aren't quite there yet, but the gums are very powerful and very strong. Then you've got to kick in that reflex to go up and down. Then you got to move the food back to the middle of the tongue to go down. When you're spoon feeding a textureless food, like a velvety puree, um, you may notice the baby actually tries to use the spoon as leverage to swallow it because puree Rays are sucked to swallow. Mm -hmm. And this is such an important thing that I wish other pediatricians like really were taught and learned, you know, in the realm of infant swallowing, purees are sucked to swallow. So that notion of stage one to stage two to stage three of thickness of puree, or even moving up to a lumpy puree, those are not foods that are going to trigger the chewing reflexes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, To be candid, this is a marketing thing by baby food companies to extend what they would call the lifetime consumer value of the customer to keep you on their product for as long as possible. To teach babies how to chew, you have to offer truly chewable food. And the fastest way to kind of jumpstart chewing, thorough chewing, safe eating, as we would see it, is actually to go to the other extreme, unbreakable, resistive um, kind of foods like sticks of food. So when we have babies who are children that we work with who have been on purees for a very long time, gag a lot with just even a piece of rice or something like that. 
which, you know, then makes the parent go, well, I want to stay on purees longer because I can't deal with the gagging. It's scary. It looks like they're choking. Our feeding therapists actually give them what we call food teethers, things like the seed of a mango, a mango pit, a corn on the cob, a chicken drumstick bone, things that are unbreakable by a six-month-old's jaws, but that put a lot of sensory input and pressure into the mouth, which helps the brain more rapidly make a mental map of the mouth, which will reduce the gagging, but also triggers lateral tongue movements and chewing reflexes to really start going, okay, I need to move this food over here. I need to go up and down, up and down, move it back and then swallow. A puree is just not going to do that. And unfortunately, one of the messages I'm really trying to bring to parents now that I've dove into the research and really got intimately familiar with all the mechanics of this is that there is no skipping ahead. You have to go through. And kicking the can down the road saying, oh, I'm just going to wait until 12 months of age or 18 months of age in my case to do chewable food because that's when they'll be more mature and they'll have more teeth actually makes it harder for the baby's brain to pick up the skill because you've got the dominant suck reflex happening and you're reinforcing that by offering the mesh pouches or you know whatever you're doing. The best thing I can tell those parents who are like, oh God, I need to make the leap now. I, you know, I need to go over to chewable food sooner than later, but I don't feel ready, is that your baby's body has your back. Yeah. The protective mechanisms, and I know you know this very well, doctor, but like the protective mechanisms and the gag reflex is only one of many, mm-hmm. um, are very powerful and strong in infants. And from a feeding therapist perspective or like an infant swallowing perspective, Our specialists and licensed professionals love doing early introduction of finger food for that very reason, because some of the reflexes, the protective reflexes start to fade after 12 months of age. And so in a lot of ways, you kind of want to introduce the challenging foods. And it sounds counterintuitive, I know, but you want to introduce the challenging foods while baby's protective reflexes against choking are at their all-time high. It makes a perfect kind of landscape for making mistakes safely. And also just as babies, I don't know if you remember your young baby, like could barely see you. And then there's that moment where they like actually focus on you. Their eyes are able to focus and they kind of know where they are. And you're like, oh, hello, welcome (laughs) to the world. It's similar with toddlers. They're more aware and more bothered by gagging and discomfort textures in their mouth than infants are. A lot of young babies, like a six-month-old baby, might take a too big piece of bite of chicken or something like that, kind of go, oh, what's this big thing in my mouth, and then have to gag it forward or spit it out. You'll often see them go right back for the same piece of food. Yeah. They're like, because what? they're just like yeah. unfazed. Yeah. They're unfazed. Yeah. They're so wired to explore the world orally. But a 12-month-old, an 18-month-old might gag and then be like, oh, that yeah. didn't feel good. I don't like it. I don't want to do that again. So we really want to take advantage of that window of opportunity, particularly between six and nine months of age. Babies are just wired to learn how to chew and how to explore food at that age. And it's a perfect age where the protective mechanisms against choking in the body are just so easily triggered and so powerful that it's a really safe time to explore. So I know it's like the opposite of everything we have ever been told by our doctors, by the you know institutions that govern this knowledge. But the reality is, is that a lot of that knowledge, you know, particularly 10 years ago and before, was uh, not shaped uh, by evidence-based research. And I'm sure you know a little bit of that too. Pediatrics is a difficult area to have a lot of research in. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. 
So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. Have you heard about the terrible twos or three-nagers? Yes, the toddler years can be tough. There is no denying that any phase of parenting can be really hard. There may be picky eating, tantrums, and struggles with potty training. But there is a lot of amazing things that you will see your toddler do during these years. I want you to enter the toddler years understanding toddler development and behavior so you can better approach tricky situations with your child. With resources on picky eating, potty training, tantrums, and other common toddler behavior like sleep refusal and toddler development, the toddler resources here at Peds Doc Talk aim to provide you with the knowledge you need to, dare I say, find some or a lot of enjoyment in the toddler years. For more on my on-demand courses, make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and check out resources for whatever you need. Have a friend? It also makes a perfect gift. Visit pedsdoctalk.com and click courses for more. Yeah. And a lot of it, as we know, and you've talked about it is, you know, you already mentioned on this episode is the marketing of baby food and how that has impacted a lot of the advice that's been given. And marketing is very, very important in all aspects of parenting. We know not just with the food industry, but toys and play and you need this and this, and this is going to help you sleep through the night. And this is going to do this. It's like preying on parents' fears and worries. And I want my kid to be safe and healthy. And I agree with that. You know, I feel like even when we look at milestones, you know, we talk about crawling and babbling, all of this stuff. You know, we have language and communication, motor, fine motor, social, emotional, cognitive. We need to really, really look at feeding as a milestone. And feeding does get grouped into speech and communication sometimes. But if you look at like the CDC milestones, there is not a lot about feeding milestones. And it's something that is really important. To Thank me. you. Yeah. Yes. Where is that? And yeah. I think back to the time when I was that terrified mom, terrified of choking, terrified of allergies, spoon fed for, you know, almost two years. If I had had a handout that said, if you want to start with purees, do this, but at eight months of age, introduce finger food, I would have sort of known how far off track I got, you know, because I don't even think I told our doctor, like, it just didn't seem like a thing I should be aware of. There was no information about it. I know that at six months, I need to have this conversation about what we just talked about that, you know, here's some resources. I give yours out, but I'm like, here's resources. I want you to do what you feel comfortable. But if a family's hesitant, right, like of the more textured, like sweet potato, that's, you know, like cut in a strip or whatnot, a cooked sweet potato, I say, hey, start with a loaded spoon. Like, let's do this. Here's how we can do that. It's kind of bridging that sort of puree and, um, you know, grabbing the item. But I'm like, you're going to be surprised. And exactly what you said. The body's going to protect itself. You're going to sit the baby correctly. It's going to be okay. And then I have had so many patients come into my office that aren't my patients. Like maybe they saw another clinician or they somehow moved here. And I see them at nine months, one year. Oh, we're still doing purees. And I'm like, what are we doing here? And it's a huge red flag for me. And I have to say, is this... And I think parents need to hear this. Are you not doing more than puree because your baby can't handle it? Or are you Mm. scared and don't know how to advance because that's really huge. And I'm going to be honest, Jenny, most of the time it's the parent not knowing how to advance or that the baby can do it. It's not the baby. Yeah. Like you said, a small percentage. That's absolutely right. I mean, even with the infants that our feeding therapists work with in the hospitals or used to before they were full-time with us, um, you know, we're talking about babies with hearts outside of their bodies, um, down syndrome, all sorts of different things. Even then, the feeding therapists are choosing what we call food teethers versus purees because it jump starts oral motor skills much more quickly to offer the chewable food and get that going versus the spoon and puree. You wonder what's so interesting? And now that I have you, I'm like, okay, you're going to tell every other doctor you yeah. know this information because it's mind-blowing. Yeah. So we just published, um, we have a, a whole portal called Solid Starts Pro for professionals such as yourself, pediatricians dietitians, OTs, SLPs, all that kind of thing. Um, and it's continuing education for credit. things like. So we publish nerdy courses like the neurobiology of choking and the neurobiology of swallowing. Oh, I love it. Um, which, are, which are there if you're part of the membership. Yeah. Um, and what is so fascinating to me just as a parent kind of auditing some of these professional courses is that 
When food is placed in another person's mouth, so let's say you're putting a piece of food in your child's mouth, that increases the risk of choking. So the converse of that, when humans at any age self-feed, they decide cognitively, I see that food, I'm going to pick it up, I'm going to put it in my mouth, the brain is more ready to facilitate a safe eating, chewing, thorough chewing, and a safe swallow. Choking, by definition, happens because of a miscoordination of the swallow. It's actually rarely the size of the food or the exact, you know, kind of shape or slipperiness of the grape. It's often just a miscoordination of all of the muscles that need to work together to make that happen safely. When we chew and swallow food, the body during the swallow closes off the airway, this little flap of tissue, which I know you know, comes over and folds over the airway so that food slides down into the food tube and not into the airway. So the body's designed, regardless of the size of food or the shape of food, to put it into the right tube, the food tube. But I think as parents, we're like, oh, if it's too big of a bite, for sure, the child's going to choke. It's actually not how it works at all. But self-feeding, letting your infant, your baby, six months old, nine months old, 12 months old, whatever it is, self-feeding in and of itself reduces the risk of choking. And this is the thing I want pediatricians to know and to go read the research. And this is, you know, very well documented. And it makes sense, right? Like imagine like, close your eyes for a second and imagine your partner putting food in your mouth. Like I would be like, no, 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 no. Get away from my face. Like, don't you even come near my, don't come near my face. And at the very least, it feels intrusive, right? right? Right. Which is why if you want to start with purees, which is fine to start there, move to finger food by eight or nine months if you can, but let baby grab the spoon for you. Let baby decide. I see that food. I grab that food. I bring that food to my mouth because that cognitive process right there is already queuing up for a safe eating experience. So that to me is where we're going to win the pediatricians over, I think, Mona, because it's science, it's physiology. And it's like, oh yeah, I get that. Um, And so we really want to get that knowledge out there to the medical community and to others, anyone who will listen, because yeah, like we said, a lot of the recommendations up until now have not been based on research, but rather heavily influenced by corporate America. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a whole other history and a whole other podcast we can do. (laughs) We could start a whole series on capitalism and parenting. I I would uh, know I have a lot to say about that. And, you know, the research you have for clinicians is so important. And it's frustrating to me because I agree with everything that you are saying. I fully believe it. And I still battle with fellow clinicians that may be a little bit older sometimes, or even my peers that are my same age and training level that are like, okay, I will say 10 to be more from the older um, crowd that doesn't have younger children. But it is so important because like I said, the milestone is there and a lot of families are coming in and the pediatrician or clinician that they're seeing is that first line. They don't know about all this stuff. And so we need this information, which is why I'm so happy that you came on this podcast. And I hope we can share it with everybody because you need to be able to advocate. And I still have families come in and tell me, oh, that other doctor said, self-feeding is not possible. I'm like, it is possible. Like it absolutely is. And I give the example, like both of my children, my son was a bottle feeder. Like he could down bottles, like no one's business. So I wasn't worried that he was going to have any issue with solids. Cause I'm like, he, look at him. Like he's ready to eat. He was grabbing my spoon. My daughter was a very, I had some concerns with her newborn feeding, breastfeeding, bottle feeding. I was just a little, something was not right. So I was a little more like, I don't know how feeding is going to go. She didn't want me to even bring the spoon to her mouth at all. She was like, hey, lady, here, I want to grab it. And it goes to show you that even if you have these worries or you're like unsure, your baby is going to surprise you and you have to give them more faith. I think we don't give our baby enough credit of, like you said, their innate mechanisms that exist and I love using analogies like you just did of like, if someone were to shove food in your mouth, would you like that? Same thing with what you mentioned um, to start the episode about your son when he was doing this sort of, mm, 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 mm-hmm. like they're moving their face. 
if you are bringing a spoon to your baby's face because you do not want to do self-feeding and they are telling you, "Mm, mm, mm," moving their head, Mm -hmm. that tells you that they do not like it. And that is so important. And I'm so glad you're bringing up the issue of trust because I actually do think it starts in the medical parent kind of relationship. You know, I've thought about this deeply, obviously, for a long time, because ultimately that's the barrier to getting folks to leap over to go, okay, yeah, actually, I think I can figure out how to modify what I'm eating to make it safe for baby. It's a big leap from where we have been in the last couple of decades. But I think it starts honestly with just this sort of, I think probably particularly Western approach in medicine, even with pregnancy, like the very first thing when you're pregnant is you start measuring the baby and weighing your own body first thing after birth, measuring the baby. And it's like, I don't know about you, but as a, obviously you have a different situation because you are a doctor, but like me as a parent, I felt like my entire job was just to grow this baby. Like that was my job. And if I wasn't growing my baby, I was failing in the eyes of my pediatrician and even my OB, right? Like in utero. And so I think that it's, it makes sense for why we don't trust our babies to know how much they want to eat. We don't even trust that they feel full. Yeah. But that is an innate thing that they are born with from day one, typically developing, you know, healthy infants will let you know when they're hungry and they will turn their heads when they're full. So why don't we trust that? Why do we think that you have to scrape that very last bit because the baby food company told you that four ounces is exactly what your babies need. The range of what is normal to eat for any given infant is so wide that we refuse to publish portion sizes. Right. Because what is normal for baby A is totally different for baby B. And both of those things can be perfectly healthy and normal for them. So, but I think back to this thing of trust, I think fundamentally that is what was broken down and I think preyed upon by various corporations over the last hundred years. You know, there were advertisements that I think preyed upon the trust of a mother trusting her body to make enough milk. You would see advertisements that said things like, what's better than breastfeeding? Breastfeeding and this jar of pears. And there are subtle and overt wow. ways that in particular maternal trust was questioned and eroded over time. And I'm hoping that this is a generation that's going to kind of claim it back. They're going to start trusting their babies, trusting their intuitions. This doesn't feel right. This particular way I'm going about this doesn't feel right. Whatever method or approach that is, just because it's the way grandma did it or grandma's grandma or the pediatrician doesn't necessarily mean that's right for you. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's fundamentally at the root of Many feeding challenges from picky eating to prolonged spoon feeding that we don't quite feel it's okay to trust our babies to say they're full or or to let them grab the piece of food and yeah. explore it. But it turns out that the risk of choking is absolutely no different, and this was proven, no different with letting a baby self-feed versus, you know, starting with spoon feeding and purees. And the more we as parents intervene and control the feeding experience, the more likely we are setting up those kids to struggle with food later on. Someone once asked me, you know, at the end of a podcast or something, if you had a billboard, what would it say? And I would say, get out of the way. Yeah. Trust your baby, trust your child, honor their cues, get out of the way. It is a natural thing to eat. They are born to eat. They are born knowing how to do it, knowing when they're hungry, knowing when they're full. Our job as parents is to create the conditions, choose the choices because we know more about food than they do at that moment in their life, offer some choices, serve at the same time, back up and let them explore and create a safe environment for them to explore and hopefully create a joyful relationship with food. Yeah. Um, and one that they trust their own internal cues to know, ah, oh, yeah, I feel full. I'm going to stop when I feel full and not take another bite just to please mom. And also not eat just to avoid some sort of consequence yeah. as an older child, right? So I think we bring a lot of baggage as parents Absolutely. to the table. I think this generation is the one that's going to strip it away and 
correct the course. I really, I really believe that. I think, you know, in my platform, like I want every human being and child to have a good relationship with food, a good relationship with their body, like good body image. Like they love who they are, you know? a good relationship with sleep. What I mean by that is understanding the importance of sleep and also understanding a connection of their emotions. Like that is to me the trifecta because that is what can prevent a lot of medical issues down the line that we can't control, right? Like you talk about Mm -hmm. like how we relate to food and it is about a trust thing. And, you know, you talk about all this when we start solids, but it really goes down, like you said, to that newborn who is feeling like, they're not gaining enough weight. That parent is concerned. It goes down to how we create feeding volumes for bottle fed babies. I mean, that's a reality. And it's still as a pediatrician and IBCLC, I get frustrated. I'm like, why are we saying that a baby should be drinking this amount when we wouldn't do that for food? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. creating from the beginning, a metric based value of a child. You should weigh this. You should be getting this much. And it's a whole thing about all parenting. Everything is metrics. And I, I get so mm-hmm. ooh, about metrics, like feeding logs. And this is how much mm-hmm. I want you to like, when we talk about food offer, like you said, the routine, don't worry about volume. If I'm looking at a growth curve and seeing something obviously trending down or trending up in an awful way, I will have those conversations. But that is also the yeah. medical community who is at fault because we end up yeah. being so laser focused in Mm, you dropped like 10%. Okay. Something's Mm -hmm. terribly wrong. We need to do a whole failure to thrive workout. Well, what's going on with the feeding dynamic? Like what is going on in the home? Like there, and that's a medical failure. And is there space for fluctuation, right? You know, as a parent of a child who was failing to thrive for all the reasons I said earlier, and, you know, kind of got that verdict from the doctor of wanting to install a feeding system on his body, a tube feeding system, so, you know, truly feeling like I had failed, like I got the the F report card, right? The thing in our sort of healing and recovery path that helps me the most as a parent, and I'm going to just share this because I think it might help other anxious parents out there, was hearing this. Try to focus on what your baby or child is eating during the whole week versus that moment or day. Mm-hmm. because it's okay for fluctuation. There's space for fluctuation. And when you look at the whole week, you go, oh, actually, yeah, that was enough. That was, that was probably fine. But if you're you know, kind of sleep deprived and just looking at that one morning, that bottle refusal, and then didn't eat solids, you don't know what's going on that day. It might be teething, might be lack of sleep. It might be separation anxiety. It might be a developmental leap yeah. forward. There are so many reasons for why an infant might not be interested Give yourself some space for fluctuation. And unless your doctor is concerned about the curve, like try to put that burden on the doctor, right? Like don't carry that day to day. We've got enough doctor appointments. And as long as you're keeping to them and showing up, you know, they will flag if something's not quite right. But I just wish our medical system and our kind of parenting culture had some space for fluctuation because that is that's the thing I didn't realize was okay. It was like, there's yeah. going to be days in which your baby is just like, I'm just too tired to learn this skill today. You're asking me to sit up first yeah. of all, which is a new skill. You're asking me to grab something with fingers that I can barely move, <laughs> yeah. you know, with any articulation <gasps> to accurately bring it to my yeah. mouth and not like poke myself in the eye. Like this is a lot to ask of me. And sometimes they're just not going to want it, do it, you know? And so let's make some space for fluctuation and for flexibility and not think that, you know, just because this one meal was refused that we're on like this path that's going to spiral down. You talked about our generation being the one that breaks the cycle of, okay, how we approach feeding. And I love that. I think we are. And at the same time, our generation, and I I speak a lot about this, our generation's fault is that we forget to look at that big picture. A lot of the times we end up looking more at checkboxes than we do big picture because of, again, what society tells us about what you need to do and all, all that. All the information pushed yeah. to us. And yeah. so, then, so then you're in a meal and you're like, well, okay, well, they said that I have to eat this much. And okay, but she only did one ounce. And then that's what leads to that anxiety of pushing. And we want to just, yeah. oh gosh, if I could like, again, throw things from a, a, like okay. a fire. Second billboard. <laughs> yeah. Second billboard. The more you pressure your baby to eat, the less they are going to eat. Exactly. And that's the same for children too. The more 
a child feels pressured to eat, whether it's a bottle, breast, or solid food, the less they are likely to eat. So if you want your child to eat more, you've got to back off. You've got to stop pressuring them. But Jenny, if I don't pressure them, they don't eat. It's such like a twisted thing, right? Like that's what parents will tell me. I'm like, no, 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 trust, trust us. It's a short game thing though. They might yeah. eat more that one I moment know. because of whatever tactic you're using to pressure them or to interest them, whether it's overt pressure or not. But in the long run, that'll likely backfire, especially if it's done frequently. So we have to keep our sights on the long run. Is your goal just to fatten up this child by age one? Or is your goal to raise a child who wants to come to the table easily and enjoy the meal with you and feel that food is nourishing and fun and joyful? Those two things can be in conflict sometimes. And I think giving ourselves the flexibility not to focus on that immediate milestone of this baby needs to gain X ounces or yeah. you know pounds by this date and really focusing on the long game can be freeing um, for a lot of people. Yeah. But it's not how our medical system is set up, right? Wow. <laughs> it's such a, it, I mean, there's so many. We're operating layers. in a context of milestones and yeah. growth charts and, and all of those things. But maybe doctors like you will help sort of I, change I hope so. that. You know, that I, one of the things that when I saw your platform, I was like, man, I should have been part of this platform because of just the philosophy of feeding and holistic approach to feeding. It's not just feeding. Yeah. It's never, it never has been. And yet we do yeah. that in all aspects of health and parenting. And you mentioned it a lot of the times, and I understand you do this, but as a pediatrician, I'm going to be very frank that, you know, you said, okay, if your pediatrician's concerned, our system needs to change because some of my colleagues are like concerned about things that I'm like, why are we creating anxiety for a family when it doesn't need to be there? Like, and there's an art of how we approach those anxiety provoking conversations. Like if I am worried about a child not gaining weight, I'm not going to say, Hmm, what are you doing? The kid's not gaining weight. I'm going to be like, Hey, look, I want to talk about the weight here. So, you know, I'm looking that it was on the 90th and we're seeing a little bit of a turn down here. And so I think we should spend some time talking about how is feeding going? How are you feeling about this? Like we've lost that because we don't have time. And I, mm-hmm. I want to bring so that rushed. back, you know, I want, and it's important that we bring that back because then families feel supported and they're not going home, Googling, unsafe mm-hmm. answers and spiraling down. Yeah, yeah. And your platform is my go-to, you know, I, there's so many great resources, but I want to kind of say the fact that y'all have that first food database, but you also are helping clinicians. You know, I know yeah. you've grown with that, you know, the, obviously the brand has grown to really help so many people around the world, like you mentioned is the future. Um, and what would be that final message for everyone listening, you know, about picky eating, selective eating, feeding their kids? I know you've brought mm-hmm. so many pearls already, uh, but what would you say? Hmm. The one thing I would have done differently, mm-hmm. and it's hard to go back 2020 hindsight, and, and I would have done this differently with all three of my kids. You know, we did uh, exclusive spoon feeding for a very long time with our first, and then with the twins, we did infant self-feeding, early finger foods and all of that. But the thing I would have done differently with all three is I would have introduced the integrated family meal, like whatever my husband and I were eating that night earlier, because I think we're in this, you know, mentality of like baby needs, quote unquote, baby foods, and then toddlers need, quote unquote, kid foods. And there's a time and a place for all of that. Look, convenience is a beautiful thing. And I love me a good yogurt pouch on the way to swim class or, you know, whatever bar on the way to school when we're in a crunch for breakfast, whatever it is. But there's no reason after you've introduced the common allergens, I would say, and if you've figured out how to modify the food to make sure it's not a choking risk. So flattening round foods like a chickpea or things like that, which, you know, our free database teaches you how to do, but get to the family meal, whatever that looks like for you as soon as possible. Yeah. Maybe turn down the salt a notch, flatten the choking risks that that are round, get the allergens out of the way, but there's no special category of food needed for our children. That is a, a marketing construct and a corporate construct because it is so flipping profitable. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a $90 billion industry. Yeah. 
It's, I mean, it's insane. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's a time and a place for all of um, those foods in our lives. They make life easier. They make kids happy. Sometimes you just need the dino nugget, you know, like yeah. there's nothing bad about it. But if we can get to the family meal sooner, that baby is more likely to embrace foods with different textures, more likely to eat things like vegetables um, and just a wider variety of food. The earlier you can kind of jump to what we would call adult food, the better. And if you think about time before marketing, right? Like let's go back to the Stone Age when people had children. They weren't pureeing down And before (laughs) Vitamix blenders or whatever. They weren't pureeing down food. They were literally probably breastfeeding or whatever. They probably wasn't before formula, okay? So they were probably like feeding their baby and then giving them the food that they eat and just make it modified. Like it's kind of going back to the basics. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a really interesting, the history of baby food is really interesting, but it was invented. Baby yeah. food as we know it, you know, perfectly thin, watery, velvety yeah. purees, whether in a pouch or a jar, that was a, that's an invention um, and requires a lot of machines to make it that kind of texture. But yeah, that's that's a whole yeah, other should. podcast, yeah, Nona, but we should do it. It's a fun one. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've obviously learned from, you know, obviously your, um, when you've, especially when you first started the platform, I remember seeing a lot of posts about that. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Jenny, this was a pleasure. I think we've already created three other ideas for episodes um, or even yes, a whole podcast together just to have our own show. Um, but thank you. Where can everyone stay connected? I'm going to be adding all of this to our show notes, but if you can just let people Great, know. thank you. Yeah, the easiest place is Solid Starts on Instagram. That's where our largest community is and the most daily effort, I think, from our team. But our website houses our free food database, solidstarts.com. The app you can get from the App Store, Google Play, whatever, wherever you go for apps. And um, yeah, we'll see you there. It's growing fast and you'll be joining a community of parents from every single country in the world now, which is And that database, amazing. everyone, please go and check it out. I mean, like she said, it had every country, like every food you can imagine. We're not there yet. I, I, I want right. to manage expectations. It's yeah. about 350 foods there when we are done. And every food is evaluated, you know, by the whole yeah. medical team. But when we're done, the free database will have every food in the world. And yeah. so we have some gaps in Southeast Asia. And I would say um, certainly foods um, in West Africa, like not quite there yet and, and some South America, but we're, we're chugging along. We're chugging along. Yeah, it grows every day. And again, thank you for all that you do. Thanks for starting this platform. It came from inspiration from your own story and look where it is now. And I love that story. Thank you. Um, so thank you for taking the time to join us today. This was awesome. Thank you. It was so nice to see you. Let's yeah, do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be having Jenny on again if our schedules allow, because as you can hear, she's growing this amazing We'll make platform. it happen. <laughs> yeah. And um, if you love this episode, make sure you leave a review, call out Jenny and all the amazing things that you heard today. And make sure to share this episode with everyone that you know, including people from other generations, people who may think that babies cannot self-feed. We need to get this information out there so that we can start the feeding revolution that Solid Starts is, is doing and continues to do. So thank you. And I cannot wait to chat with another guest next time. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, TV. We'll talk to you soon. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.